lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and HowToLoveAHuman.com, where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Jay Mace, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover how to love a human. Hey everyone, today on How to Love a Human, I am with Jay Mace, poet, educator, and founder of Awkward Talent. Hey Mace, what's up? Hey Candace, how you feeling? I'm feeling all right. How you feeling today? <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> well, I have a question that's my non-researchy question that I start with, and it goes back to this feeling thing. Are you feeling human or human as fuck today? I'm feeling human as fuck today, I think. That's sort of where I'm at. <laughs> okay. Tell me what's the difference for you. How do you make the distinction between the two? Um, for me, I think when I hear human, sometimes it feels, especially as we talk about social justice and, and certain things, I think sometimes for some spaces, um, the idea of humanist can get very watered down. Mm. Um, and so I think that it takes a lot of uh, resilience and strength to make it through spaces that want your struggle to sometimes get watered down. Mm-hmm. And so today I'm feeling definitely steady and um, really uh, living in my purpose in the way I'm supposed to and feeling human as fuck. Gotcha. When you say watered down, break that down for me. Uh, so when we think about even racial justice, right? So someone could say over here, well, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then someone over here will say, well, we're all human. people try to make you turn it into um i think that people try to make you turn it into this very like because i think even as we think about you know even the podcast as we talk about how to love humans Mm -hmm. like love can look very different depending on what you've had to survive and Mm -hmm. what you had to use to create that love right yeah so for me my love is remembrance it is um about um survival it is about care it is about caretaking you know, I think that many people, again, going back to people who, like when I think about white folks who are really not ready yet mm-hmm. <laughs> to be down for racial justice, uh, what they want me to turn my my kind of love, which can be for some people seen as radical, for some people seen as anger, for some people seen as all these things. Uh, they want my love uh, and my, um, my, um, my feelings and the ways I express those things to be more... Passive. They want you to temper it. Yeah, they want you to temper it. So Mm. it's got to be this peaceful, we're all one kind of thing, which is not necessarily how I survive. Got it. I feel (laughs) you. Well, you've kind of jumped down to one of my other questions, but we'll come back to it because I want to go to the who are you question. Share your most salient identities with me. So for me, I would say my most salient identities are that I identify as a black person, as a trans person, as a multi-faith Christian and Muslim person. Um, Yeah, and I think to me, I identify as someone who's invested in cooperative economics. Mm -hmm. I identify as someone who is Mm -hmm. transmasculine. Yeah, and I think all those things are important to me. So you said black, trans, transmasculine, multi-faith. Mm-hmm. And so what makes yeah. go ahead? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm saying specifically Christian and Muslim. Christian and Muslim. Mm-hmm. Most of. And what makes those identities stand out to you versus others? I think for a lot of uh, for a lot of folks, for myself uh, and for many other folks, I think that the identities in which we had to survive the hardest on, mm. I think, are the ones that come up most. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that's 
you know, in a world that does not see transness as human all the time, mm. or in a world that does not see blackness as human as a, as in a country that does not see Islam and Muslims as human all the time. Right. You know, uh, those things. So that stuff in which I've had to reframe how people come and deal with me are the things that become most important for me to articulate to others. Mm-hmm. And so that intersection of all of those have to be yeah. present when you're talking about who you are. Most definitely. Gotcha. Most definitely. When you talk about the world not treating black people, trans people, black trans people, <laughs> and Muslim people, black trans Muslim people as not human <laughs> all the time, um, yeah. what does that look like? So for me, actually, I was um, I was actually writing out some questions, some uh, a response to some questions today for uh a newspaper that was talking about some of the, I think in New Orleans right now, some people are arguing about whether or not to keep their Confederate uh, symbols up. Are we still having that um, argument? People are still having an argument. People oh, are still, God. it's 2017. Everyone look at your watches and your calendar. <laughs> it's 2017. It's 12, 12, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> and people are still arguing about whether or not to keep symbols of Confederacy up, right? Right. Um, so for me, I think that's a perfect example of the ways that we're not treating, especially around blackness, around, and not just blackness, but so any, you know, um, but particularly blackness in that instance, when we talk about a history that is literally about the killing of our people and mm -hmm. enslaving us, and there are people arguing right now about whether or not we should still um, look to those leaders mm. as, as um, founders of our country and founders of um, the world that we live in and should they still be revered mm. you know um, and then you have so you'll have uh, lots of white folks um, as well as non-white apologists mm -hmm. <laughs> who mm -hmm. will say well you know these people were important figures in history and totally skirt the fact that these were murderers right, right. let's not <laughs> let's not take that away these people are murderers and they caused a uh, huge um, divides around uh, people's again, people's ability to be on this planet physically mm -hmm. cause great rifts in the ways that we still right now today in 2017 deal with wealth distribution economics. Mm. Yes, they created um, as we talk about environmental justice and the rights of black and brown people to have safe um, land right. <laughs> to live on and access to environmental spaces. These people still, you know, that that kind of structure that was built still impacts us today. And when we as black folks articulate that we're still being questioned about whether or not we are uh whether our insight is good enough mm. to know we've been harmed so you said a couple of things that i want to dig all the way into i was yeah. listening to this show on food justice mm, i want to say last week or the week before and it highlighted something you just said about how farmers black farmers in particular so now they may own the land but the land that they were even given the option to own had less re like soil resources, or I don't know how to break it down, than the land that white people were allowed to own. And then that's if you were able to save up the resources or accumulate the resources to own land. So the layers of injustice in just that generational, um, that generational dissemination of wealth makes makes a huge impact. Most definitely. And then there was another piece you said, I want you to break down for people because I feel where you're coming from, but I want to know, non-white apologists, please mm -hmm. dig off into that. Well, so when we talk about not being treated human all the time, right, so the reality is, is we as black folks, as trans folks, um, as Muslim folks, like, there was a time, you know, and there is still times, right, when we also play into the kind, the very kinds of white supremacy um that's trying to kill us, mm, right? Mm. Um, and we do that as, as a way to sometimes survive. Um, you know, I think that, uh, and so I might get this wrong because I'm not an academician, mm -hmm. but so my understanding of what I think about, you know, things like, like Afro-pessimism, and I think about concepts in the sense of, you know, for me it's um, Afro-pessimism is about the idea that regardless of what we do, um, white supremacy will still be in effect when mm. we die. So when those of us that are alive right now, regardless of anything that we specifically do, uh, we will die and white supremacy will still be in effect. When I think about non-white apologists, there are people that are not necessarily about the survival of all of us as black folks and mm -hmm. brown folks, mm -hmm. but they're about their own individual survival. 
right? Yeah. Um, and so there's certain things that they had to play into. And, like, you know, Clarence Thomas is a good example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, people like when I watch Ben Carson, you know, and sometimes I'm just like, what the fuck are you saying? Ben yeah. Carson? <laughs> you know, uh, those are people who uh, love to curl up to the, themselves some whiteness because they're not necessarily trying to save their whole family, everybody in their neighborhood, but they know they can save themselves. Mm. And, and can so, they like, save themselves, right? I'm trying to figure out. I haven't it. answered the question yet, but can you save no. yourself with that? I mean, I don't think so. Personally, I don't know that you can completely save yourself because we look at someone like Oprah who is still, you know, get stopped in stores, right? Mm-hmm. So, and she's Oprah, mm-hmm. right? So she's Oprah. Um, so I don't know that she can save herself from all the, uh, all the ways in which anti-blackness operates, but she can make herself hella comfortable. Right. 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 So on a regular day, I know she's sitting a lot prettier than many of us out here. So I don't know if you can, uh, you know, cause even if we think about the ways that we are tied to others, you know, if you, what does it mean to save yourself if someone else you love and care about gets pinched in the judicial system mm. or, you know, or, uh, gets murdered in the street or, you know, is still not able to find a job or, you know, all these different things. Um, but you can shield yourself maybe with enough wealth and enough, um, fancy things that for at least a time, it doesn't matter, Mm. but at some point you're going to get caught again. Gotcha. That resonates with me so much. I've been watching underground. Have you been seeing that show? I've not seen that show yet. (sighs) It's one of the best shows on television. And Mm -hmm. I, don't even have cable. I had to purchase that show so I could watch it because <laughs> it's not on Hulu no more. That's a commitment. It's That's a real a commitment. commitment. It's a commitment. But Harriet Tubman was talking about how you might suggest that your comfort is freedom, but it's not if your family, your community, the world, everybody in it doesn't experience liberation or freedom. And I was just mm-hmm. like, yeah. Because I always, I always come back to that question. Can people who have whatever range of internalized oppression they have to function in ways that just align with and maybe even try to rebuild parts of an oppressive system, can they really be free? I yeah. think if they shut off their parts of mm. their brain in which those other folks are human, I think that, yes, they can. Yeah. So if you buy into the same tactics, because in the, you know, Again, even going back to the Black Lives Matter piece, how many of us have been in a place where we maybe blamed a family member for going into the justice system? Mm. Or we blame someone, or we as black and brown folk, we've been trained to also critique, well, they shouldn't have done this, they shouldn't have done that. Even though white kids can go around and do whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. they do whatever they want, right? Um, and, not, and there's a 99.9% chance that the police officer is not going to shoot them, but we will find ways to uh, blame our ourselves and our community members for their shortcomings. Mm. We do that around trauma and abuse all the time. Yeah. You know, because that that's what keeps us not questioning a patriarchal system. It keeps us not questioning systems of power. Um, and for some of us, it lets us keep our heads low enough that we can imagine we have some sort of control over the situation. You want to believe in a just world so badly yeah. that you're willing to blame somebody who has been victimized by a system or a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely, and I think capitalism makes us feel that way too, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it makes mm-hmm. us believe that there's a possibility of a just system that you do X Y Z work, and this thing is what's going to happen. When for most of us, that's not how it works, mm-hmm. but leads us that every day. I know I've bought into it at a number of levels, and when you continue to try to like deconstruct that for yourself when I reflect on what my life has looked like up until this point, I'm like, Oh, that was a point where I was for sure buying into if I, if I sound this way, if I write this way, if I do just so, then maybe I'll survive. Maybe I'll have access to all the things I desire in life. Yeah. And at a certain point you realize, but what does that matter? Yeah. What about, some of the other identities you may not have mentioned, like socioeconomic status, ability status, uh, things like that, um, and how they might impact who you are or resonate with who you are. Almost definitely, right? So, you know, I think uh, for me, when I even talk about uh, being based at this point in my life around cooperative economics, I think a lot of that for me is sort of um, 
about coming from a family who was connected to the Nation of Islam, as mm-hmm. well as coming for myself, coming from a family like my family. Um, you know, one of my parents did not graduate high school. The other one graduated um, with a master's degree by the time I was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we uh, we became middle class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I think that access to... So what? To a lot of things, right? So one, my my family member, that's my parent, my mother, who had that master's degree, also you know worked in higher ed. So I was able to go into to college, uh, not in a way that was a lot more prepared, I think, than many of my other peers, Got because it. I was very yeah. familiar with the process, was very familiar with uh, with the way things worked, and I was also not. Uh, whereas a lot of my colleagues um, and peers had anxiety around talking to people with. Words like doctor behind their name, mm-hmm. um, their name. I never had that fear, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, so for me, cooperative economics is recognizing for myself that I did have a certain level of comfort, uh, kind of coming up in the world, um, and that it's my responsibility to also take care of others and pour back into a system in which money that I that brings comes in from my paycheck isn't just for me; it's for my community. Yeah, and so how do we? Uh, find ways to, one, uh, support each other in the uh, accrual of resources and the ways that we need them, um, and be not as committed to ownership over sharing mm. things in the community, and that's finances as well as physical resources. Um, yeah, and in terms of, uh, for me right now, I'm thinking about um, being an able-bodied person, being someone who's, uh, you know, a citizen, like, mm-hmm. um, these are things in which, uh, so for the organization that I run, Awkward, which for folks that uh, don't know what Awkward is, it's, a, it's an organization that takes to uplift the work of trans and queer artists of color. Yes. Uh, the, the dismantling of some of those, uh, of some of that oppression and some of that space that I take up, that we've all taken up um, in different ways, right, based off whatever our privileges are, is, you know, the answer to that for me is about consistent collaboration with others, right? Mm. And so how do we make sure we're not the only ones that are always speaking or not the only ones that are also, again, taking up resources and and kind of, um, yeah, just not being as shitty of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. I don't even know how to better say that. It's like, you know, um, it's we- that belief that other people know better than you do. Mm. Um, and accepting that other people need to be in charge at times. Some there's some because there's something that can be very seductive about being a person who's recognized as credible and who yes. people want to hear you speak and hear having heard you speak, you are credible clearly and <laughs> <laughs> and you do an amazing job communicating with people and drilling home some messages that people need to hear and feel and know and experience like all of the senses need to be engaged in what you're saying so it could be really seductive to be like oh you are now the expert forever and forevermore you are the only trans man of color the only black trans man that we will ever want to hire for this it can be like yeah "Yeah, i'm that person you know (laughs) so how do you use awkward to distribute that access and that visibility so for me, it's about when people, you know, because awkward, when you start a new business, a lot of it is based off of, it's about the connections that you made over the years, it's about all these different things. Mm-hmm. And so for me, what I try to do is I take stock of, um, so whenever we kind of dole out, so resources for awkward, so we do two things. So one, we provide emergency grants for trans artists of color mm-hmm. so, and versus in a way in which, you know. I used to, so operate as an LLC and not a nonprofit for lots of reasons mm-hmm. we can get into around the ethics of that and why specifically we decided to do a um, organization that doesn't have to beg foundations that usually come from white spaces that stole lots of money from black and brown people for money. <laughs> no, that's real. Say more. I do want to hear more about that, but keep going on the points you were making. Yeah. And so we, um, so whereas in those situations, people have to write these long reports about why you know why they deserve yes uh, we do why they deserve survival why they deserve rent money why they deserve to to create something and so usually people just tell us one sentence like this is what i need and then we say you know if we have it in the bank 
and we have it in, you know, and you have an electronic, you have PayPal, you got Venmo, you got whatever, people will give it to you today. So, mm-hmm. we'll, you know, or we'll, we'll book you something. We'll book you a place to stay. We'll do whatever we need. You know, so it's, it's one, um, trying to make sure that we as community can be transparent around resources, mm. um, which I think is really important. The other thing is for us and our artists, you know, things that we consider when, we're, uh, when people reach out, because a lot of times people don't necessarily know. Um, sometimes they're like, I'm looking for a specific artists, and sometimes they're like, I have no idea what I'm looking for. Yeah. And so we think about things like, okay, so how many of us got our full rep paid this month, right? Who mm. doesn't got their rep paid, right? Who's good at this, right? So some t- Or someone might request someone to do something, and again, it might not be the right fit. So, for example, like someone might request someone who's, um, you know, I'll use myself example. Someone reached out and said, oh, Mace, you know, you do a lot. You've done a lot of work talking with organizations, other people who do um, HIV and AIDS care. Right. Can you come and talk about this? And so I said to that person, well, you know, I'm not HIV positive. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm not an expert in that way. Like I've always done that stuff collaboratively. But I'm not the expert. Um, but I do know some really great artists who have this experience and have, do some really great work on um, dismantling the state. So um, so here's these people to talk to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff like that. So also making sure that just because someone asks, you can still reframe the question mm. and make sure people are aware why you're doing it. I like that. You're not compelled to answer the what they ask if you have knowledge about what the question should have been. Right, mm. right, because people, because a lot of times we're operating from so many different spaces, right, of oppression, of, um, you know, of living in some of that stuff. Sometimes, uh, you know, it takes a minute for us to to understand how what we might be asking or doing might be playing into that very system mm-hmm. that we're purporting to want to stop. Yep. So a part of that kind of gets into what you were, where you were going with the why you chose to be an LLC and not a nonprofit, but if you could just dig in more, because I think that's really important information, especially for people with multiply marginalized identities who are like, I'm about to start this business and I want to encourage my community and stay connected and do awesome work. Like what, why, why that choice? And what does that mean? So, um, yeah. So one thing I want to, uh, mention to people is the NFL is a nonprofit. Is it? <laughs> the NFL. I didn't know that. Is a nonprofit. So I want people to sit with that a little bit. And what does that mean for a multi-million dollar organization? <laughs> Let me sit with that for a minute. Shoot. Mm. So, nonprofit <laughs> doesn't mean what we think it means. <laughs> so that let's be clear with that first, right? Um, I think that when we talk about the structure of nonprofits, when we think about social services in this country, all these different things. Um, a lot of these different organizations, so we, we hear nonprofit and we assume that someone is doing quote unquote good work, right? Mm-hmm. If we look at the structure of nonprofits, again, of where, where did, when we talk about foundation money, when we talk about um, uh, organizations that are set up to do, to provide social service under nonprofits, all this different stuff, um, again, it is not possible in the U.S. to have access to wealth without it being built off of um, black suffering or mm-hmm. brown land or bodies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not possible. Right. So it's always about either undervaluing or paying of that labor. Um, when I think about my times, so I worked in the nonprofit in the LGBTQ nonprofit system um, for almost a decade. Some of the things that would come up is looking at, you know, we would have young people who couldn't afford to eat. Right. Mm. Um, but we would pay them maybe twenty five dollars to sit in a focus group so we could get all their information. And then we could write a hundred thousand dollar grant off that. Wow. Right. But the student is still, this young person, right, if they are or are not even a student, right, um, is still broke, mm. right? But we credentialed ourselves as experts based off information the, the young people told us. Wow. Right? So that, that stuff feels very off when we look at the leadership of non, many nonprofit organizations. There are some nonprofit organizations that are based in and from the communities that they're a part of most definitely right so what i don't want to say is that every single nonprofit is bad or blah blah so that's not that's not honestly the truth um however right there's a space when one many nonprofits that purport to be doing good work and doing social justice work don't even trust the people that mm. they're trying to serve right don't so, even trust them to be on the board don't even trust them to be on the board they'll put them on what is it the advisory board mm-hmm. right? the free <laughs> one where you don't even get paid to come in you just you don't get paid so yeah you don't get um, you don't get any kind of um, people don't even have to listen to you 
right? So whereas an executive board is a body that is basically over an executive director, everybody says, you know, you all have to do what we say here because we've collaborated on this. An advisory board is where they usually put the younger people, the people mm. of color, the people with disabilities, the people um, who grew up poor, like all these different places um, as a way to pretend like they're invested in the community. Mm. And at the top is always the executive director who is going to be 95% of the time white and cis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those larger nonprofits, you know, like there are nonprofits where um, executive directors can make a million dollars, could make $350,000, right? And will still say, turn around and say to someone on the ground who's going to come in and do a workshop, give a talk, or give their information in a focus group and say, well, you know, we, you know, we're a nonprofit, so you should come in and do this for Ooh. free. Right? So there's that huge dynamic. Um yeah, and then just that 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 begging of money from people who stolen it in the first place mm. is very hard. So nada, I make three hundred thousand dollars, or even I make seventy five thousand dollars as an executive mm-hmm. director, and we don't have it in our budget line item to pay you what you're worth, but I have it, and I think your worth your time is valuable, right. so I will pay for it. But you should do it for free. And so it's like, because I know for myself, you know, Awkward is a small business. Mm-hmm. And somehow we find a way to give away money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, uh, with people, you know, if I want someone to do something for myself, whether it's part of Awkward or not, you know, I find a way to pay them. And even the smallest, it's usually the smaller organizations that I've seen, um, nonprofit or not, that will find a way to pay someone something. Mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. something about the nonprofit system as a whole and what it means to be successful in that that usually also means dehumanizing the people at the bottom. Mm. Um, as well as, as, again, this place of, um, like, for myself getting to a place when I was in a, a space that I was doing social service uh, practices that a lot of the social services that exist in this country is because we as black and brown people weren't trusted to take care of ourselves, mm. right? And so what does it also mean um, that a lot of the tactics that are used are also about destroying our culture and not value. Like, what does it mean that I can make a marketing campaign within a social service or nonprofit organization that reaches out to young people and uses all the um, language that I needed to, like lit or on fleek or all the kind of stuff? But if I spoke that in a boardroom, I would not be hired to a job, mm. right? Like, there's a way in which um, that theft Co-op. of intellectual mm-hmm. property and labor uh, is still very clear. Yeah, that's real. I appreciate you taking me down that rabbit hole because I wasn't going to I wasn't going to ask that question. And you gave me the question to ask. <laughs> it was a good place was, to go. It was a good was a long rant. I apologize. <laughs> it wasn't a rant at all. It was information and somebody is blessed because of it. So I appreciate it. Um, but I'm, I'm going to jump around right now. You started talking about this near the beginning and the question is, what does love mean to you? And you used words like remembrance and survival and caretaking. Can you break that down? Yeah, I think for me, when I think about love, it's um, it's the acknowledgement that there were people that came here before me mm. uh, that are on this planet that have been looking out for me mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time, whether or not I accepted it or was aware of it, um, whether or not they were in my direct line or not. Um, and so it's partially understanding that you're connected to a larger force than yourself. Mm. Um, it's also saying, so in the same way as I'm talking about cooperative economics, if I think about myself as a caretaker within my family, uh, uh, you know, as far as physical caretaking, things like that. Um, yeah. Love to me means that we all get out together, mm. right? So we all are surviving this stuff together and, because other people put in this labor for me, um, whether or not they knew what my life was going to look like or who I was going to be, yeah. and they just did it, you know, that it's my responsibility to do that for people that exist now and will exist in the future. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. So knowing that people came before you with the yeah. intention to prepare a space for you to make sure that you could exist and survive. They couldn't change the entire world, but they worked hard to create space for you, and you want to do that for other people to care for them in that yeah. space. Yeah, um, I think it's like that. Uh, what is that? That Octavia Butler quote. Um, 
you know, we are who our ancestors dreamed of. Mm. Um, and also, I think I, I was, I did a show this weekend with a friend of mine, David Figueroa Aditi, and we did this um, conversation through poetry. And so one of these uh, poems that I did um, was about my mother and the relationship I had to my mother when it came to my art when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so as a kid, you know, when I was saying, you know, I wanted to be a poet, my mother was like, oh, this is really cute. As I got to an adulthood, and I was like, I'm going to be a full-time poet. You know, my mother freaked out. <laughs> I think most, most parents uh, would also freak out. And so, you know, I used to be, I remember my mother, what she used to say to me, you know, you can't bend the world to your desires. You have to fix yourself to it. You know, mm, so something like that my mm-hmm. mother would tell me. And so as a kid, I used to be like just brooding and mean that she would tell me things like this. Like, my mother's trying to crush my dreams, you know. Um <laughs> And as an adult, what I had to recognize is my mother was trying to protect me Mm. and she was sitting there and she had no idea for me to survive and that the things that I was talking about were things that we collectively have been taught as black folks were not possible for us. And she wanted to make sure that I survived. And so even in her nose and all these things that she was saying to me was that I love you. Mm. And I didn't get that until I was an adult and I could recognize that she was um, trying to put me in a space where she could guarantee that I was going to be all right. Mm. And I, I love that look at how parenthood forms. Like, how, so I think Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about like how parents and black parents in particular love their children. And I'm wondering about like our generation and how we treat children, ours and ours and within the community. Do we want to love our kids the same way? Do we want to love them with no? Is that still what we need to survive or do we need something else at this point? You know, I think that um, I think that's so hard based off of, like what people have access to in their yeah. spaces, right? Yeah. So, because I think that um, I don't, because even I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about um, discipline and things like that. So I'm not going to go. Down <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I'm here for I'm here for all parts of the conversation you want to have. So just know that. using that with youth like I'm not sure right now I believe in whatever you believe in for yourself yeah you know but that doesn't mean I'm sure about it I... yeah mm-hmm. what would the world be like if it loved you humans like you black trans masculine people from mm. middle class backgrounds um we're able-bodied I'm trying to put it all in like a you So if the world loved me, I would say that more folks who identify similarly around uh, blackness, around transness, um, would uh, have access to the resources they need, not just to live, but to thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel really blessed that the work that I get to do is the work that I feel excited about on this planet. Um, And I think that if the world loved me, it would guarantee that other black trans people uh, got to survive. It mm-hmm. would stop killing black trans femme people. Mm. It would stop incarcerating black trans femme and black trans masculine and black non-binary people. Mm. It would stop um, 
putting us in spaces as black folks and brown folks and trans folks and Muslim folks with so much trauma in a space in which we have to feel like sometimes we're fighting each other to survive. Yeah, um, yeah I think all those things. Um, it would, uh, you know, it would recognize the ways in which uh, mental, physical disability plays into the police system. Mm. It would stop mm. the police system, <laughs> the mm. police state. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just wouldn't exist. And yeah, I don't know. People would have more puppies. I would like yeah. to imagine that would also be a world. I like that. <laughs> I'm gonna back up though, because even though I'm here for puppies, I'm also here from for how we understand our police system and our law enforcement processes. So you brought up um, mental and emotional disability and how that intersects with law enforcement. Can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, so when we look at the stats around who is most likely to not just get incarcerated but to also uh, serve longer sentences, to be more likely to be killed by the police state um, on site. It's people that not are just black, but also tend to be folks with mental mm-hmm. and or physical disabilities, right? Yeah. Um, so the further you are <laughs> from the place of power, you know, the more likely you are to um, end up in the prison system or the yeah. jail system. So, yeah, and so thinking about that we can't talk about decarceration or dismantling the police state without also talking about disability. Mm, mm-hmm. And what would it look like? So in this world that loved you, if we did not have this law enforcement and criminal justice system, in what ways would that look like more promising in this world? Uh, so I think right now, actually, uh, so one of the founders of black lives matter, Patrice colors, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, doing this 30 Days of Abolition piece. Mm. I know that they just released um, some some really great things online that I think folks should look at about what does it look like to abolish the police state. Mm. Um, for me, thinking about the biggest thing that comes up as a survivor of different types of violence, yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that comes up for me in a world without police is the clear uh, decision towards accountability. Yeah, And that means saying to people who are um, who have committed violence, saying, that people are not necessarily disposable, but we do have to hold them accountable for things that they do. Yeah. And so that means in our families having really difficult conversations, the clear conversations about when people have been abusers. Mm. It means mm-hmm. um, when uh, someone uh, in power uh, causes someone harm, that we don't just turn uh, an eye and wait for someone else to take care of it, that when we hear about trauma, that we actually uh, say to that person, um, either that they, you know, need to be accountable to the people that they've harmed, um, in addition to us making decisions about how we don't put people who are victims of trauma and abuse and violence in the same space as their attackers. Mm. Um, it means that, you know, um, so it's all these, so it'd be a more community approach to how we deal with pain, yeah. and uh, which I think would be a lot better because I think that the police system and the police state is not necessarily about healing. No, it's not it's about not. centering victims. It's saying that regardless of what this victim wants, or this person who's been hurt wants, this is what we're going to do. Mm. Right? And so someone else might just say, I want them to just say to people in public that this happened, right? Yeah. Um, I don't need them to go away for 10 years, right? It could just be like, I don't want them invited to the family barbecue. Right. It could be, you know, I want them to give back the $100 that they stole, right? I want them, you know, it could be whatever it is. Mm, I like that. Yep. Just letting the people who have been victimized name what they need to feel healed, to feel repaired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then if the community feels like there are other pieces that might be appropriate, then that gets negotiated within the community. Yeah. Instead of, you know, um, instead of it just, cause I think a lot of times, yeah, there is that place of, uh, uh, within activist communities, I think we talk a lot about dismantling the state and dismantling all these things, um, but we don't actually critically say, well, this is what, what we're supposed to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had multiple experiences with people in which someone said, we're going to hold this person accountable, we're going to do this thing, right? And then um, at the end of the day, nothing happens, mm. you know, because again, we're always thinking someone else is going to do something. Yeah. Um, so it means taking on more individual responsibility as being part of the community, 
which again is how I think many of us should be thinking about love. Yeah. yeah. Love as taking on responsibility in community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What identities in others do you sometimes struggle to love? What identities in others do I sometimes, that's a hard question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that for me, it's, I know that I'm here on this planet yeah. <laughs> for the survival of black and brown folks, for black and brown trans folks and things like that. Um, and so I think that for me, my love centers around that. I think I'm less apt to have capacity to show up for um, whiteness in the same way, Yeah. to show up for um, folks who have immense access to wealth. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I have less... Uh, you know, so I think some of those things are a little bit harder because it's, um, you know, I want to center the folks in my community that I think um, that need the most support, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think there are some people who are really brilliant bridge builders, mm. and I think those people are amazing and wonderful. <laughs> And I don't know that that's necessarily my role right now. In gotcha. Got it. When you say bridge builders, say more about what you think that might look like. The people that you're like, I see them building a bridge. What are they doing? So some of them are, you know, there are some people that are so brilliant right now. So actually even going back to the accountability piece, I have some colleagues that are so brilliant at working with people who have been um, accused of violence, um, of violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, again, in the world of the majority of folks who are also committing violence have also experienced violence, yeah. you know, it's important for folks not to be disposable um, and to have some place away from their victims to mm-hmm. heal, right? Um, I think that is valuable work. Yeah. I think uh, places in such, when, when we talk about disparities around race in the U.S. and the world, right? I see some people uh, that are really great at working in very... Um, uh, not just multiracial spaces that definitely feel comfortable and confident working with multiracial mm-hmm. spaces, but in spaces also doing racial justice work with other with white folks and stuff like that. Yeah. That's not um, you know, and that's that can be hard. That can be emotionally draining because you cannot have the same conversation about race that you can have amongst other people of color, yeah. specifically other Black folks and Indigenous folks and Latinx folks. You know, so yeah. So I would say those are bridge builders and so that's not and so again some people do the the bridge building um in a way that's about dismantling the system some people do the bridge building in the way of apologists right? mm-hmm. <laughs> so it depends on what stance I'm, I'm specifically talking about the gratefulness for the people that are about using those leveraging those folks privileges to redistribute resources and to do other stuff and not the apologists yeah but uh apologists yeah, build bridges so they can walk over them and then they burn them down it's like it looks like bridge building but in effect you're just trying to get over there and then once you're over there to hell with everybody else yeah so for you your work your life your purpose is to be there for affect change with connect with love on and help inspire and encourage people who have been least loved in this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so finding ways that, um, that one, because I think also there's places, even as we talk about transness and centering people are most, um, most uh, treated as though they're not loved in the mm-hmm. same way in a larger community. Like I say, trans masculine because I think that's important because you know that doesn't mean to have privilege over trans feminine folks in my community, yeah. right? And so, what does it mean to show up as a trans masculine person and be willing to not just um, dismantle stuff so that I'm okay and I'm safe, but that also means the redistribution and the conscious redistribution of resources um, and opportunities and other things for trans femme for my trans femme counterparts, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think all that is very important. Got it. And some people make the case for, well, you have to do this one thing first, so start here. And they kind of, like I have a priority list of oppression, where they're like, if you don't start here, 
then you're just trying to spread yourself too thin. And some people see it as a matrix or, you know, we're using, using intersectionality and matrix of oppression and shout out to Crenshaw and Collins, Hill Collins. But it's like, how, how do you negotiate? Okay. As a trans masculine person, I have a lot of ways in which this world will try to take me out. So I should only prioritize that versus all of us need to get free. And there are people who have less privilege than I do. And so I want to focus my efforts there. How did, yeah. how did for how does for you it not seem like you're taking an L or not giving your immediate perspective or lived experience the priority? Um, I mean, I think that it's uh, it's a balance, right? Because there mm-hmm. are spaces in which, as human beings, we do need um, some sort of space to release. And being a trans masculine person who presents very non-binary is not the same as a cis, as what a cis man gets. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's and yet, uh, it's the acknowledgement that there's stuff that I, that as rough as it might be for one person, it's also rough, <laughs> it could be rougher for other people. Mm-hmm. So I think it's the acknowledgement again around, um, so I'm a, I'm a Taurus, which I think we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm very much into caretaking. I'm very much into the idea that I don't just want to be comfortable. I want everyone to be comfortable. I love <laughs> to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think that other people deserve that. And I think people deserve to be loved unconditionally. And there's such an imbalance of the ways of who gets believed and loved Mm. in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's how can you, if you see all those folks as human, that you're seeing go through all that kind of stress and anxiety. At at Awkward, I would say, you know, again, we are not a nonprofit. (laughs) You know, we are not, you know, and um, as an LLC that serves primarily trans and queer folks of color, that means that a lot of the folks that we work with have experienced homelessness, mm. have experienced physical violence, have experienced all these things, right? Um, and if you see these people as human um, and you see these people as worthy, um, how could you not prioritize that? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have one more question. What do you love most about you? What do I love most about me? <laughs> I get that um, response a lot. People just bust out laughing when I ask them that question. <laughs> what's the most about me? Um, I don't know. I think that I'm willing to be wrong. Mm, I think I like that about mm-hmm. myself. I think that I encounter lots of people who are like, I'm never allowed to be wrong. And so I think for myself, you know, the times in which I shifted my politics was because someone told me very clearly that I was horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me, uh, give me an example of that. <laughs> you were like, nope, so I'm a example, pivot here. <laughs> I was helping to actually co-facilitate a trans people of color um, session uh, a few, maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. And this person came up to me in the middle of uh, the session. There was like a break. And this is a trans femme woman um, who was undocumented, uh, Latinx person, and said, you know, we did all this stuff for trans people of color. And we have not mentioned undocumented folks once how dare you, you know? And so this person like just went off on me. And so I just looked at her and I said, you're 100% right. Mm -hmm. We didn't. And that was an oversight because all the people on the planning, you know, there, you know, there were some people that are, that have been undocumented. Um, but most of the people that were speaking that day were people who were citizens, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I went back and I sold that to the to the other facilitators, like, you know, we have to really shift what's happening. We still have time to change something. And so the person came up to me later and she said, I just wanted to let you know, I'm so sorry that I, that I yelled at you like that. And I said, you don't have to be mm-hmm. because you were right. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, we were wrong and it is what it is. So it's not like a debate, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So stuff like that. I think knowing that, um, Sometimes you're just going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And having the, so I don't know if you would call it humility, but I, I, that's the way I describe it. The humility to be like, oh, hello, I'm still learning. So thanks for that education. Thanks for that correction because I needed that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So yeah, you, and just kind of, um, yeah, letting it be clear that it's, I think we get to this place again, especially around academia, around activism, around all this stuff, 
where we have to be the people in charge and we have to be the ones that know everything. Mm. We're doing solidarity work, right? We mm-hmm. can't possibly know everything. Not even a little <laughs> bit. Not even a little bit. Yeah. So, is there anything I didn't ask you that you think might be helpful to share or that you'd want to say before we wrap up? You know, I think it's... um. I feel like in going back to, uh, so one, I just want to say thank you for allowing the space to kind of talk about, you know, love and, and humanness and all these different things. But I do mm-hmm. think that these are concepts that so much <laughs> kind of like we were talking about earlier, kind of get watered down. Yeah. So I think it's, um, I think for our own, not just the recognizing the humanity of others, but for ourselves, yeah. <laughs> it's really important for us to qualify, quantify what we mean by love, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and how we display that and whether or not we're truly living in our values or we're, uh, you know, because usually I always tell people our ideal selves and our actual selves have usually never met. (laughs) 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 And so it's, it's important for us to take stock of those things and say to ourselves, like, have we actually been living the kind of love that we keep talking about? Mm. It always sounds good to say. Mm-hmm. It sounds great to say. Like I yeah. love everyone. That is that sounds yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, do you though? Because how did that look for you? Would other people say that about you, or is that what you hoped for? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I appreciate you so much for being on Jay Mays. And taking the time to share your perspective with me and share it with the people in the How to Love a Human audience. Um, and I really appreciate what you have to say. So thank you so much. Yeah, no worries. Again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I hope folks will, you know, if people have more questions, I hope they reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, people can find us at uh, awkwardtalent.com, A-W-Q-W-A-R-D talent.com. Uh, yeah, because I would love to continue this conversation. Yep, please hit them up. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. To connect and contribute, go to howtolovehuman.com. For more episodes, find Dr. Candace Nicole on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you like the show, leave a five star review. Thank you, and see you next week. How to love a human.